0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Let the Rivers Clap Their Hands. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 13th, 2012. If the Psalms had been written by a single author, you might think he was bipolar. The highs are very high, and the lows are very low. Some psalms, for example, are full of bitterness and despair, complaining about God's silence. Why has he abandoned us? Why is faith so bitter? But other psalms are nearly manic in their joy. This week's Psalm 98 is a case in point. As the Bible so often does, Psalm 98 offers a counterintuitive alternative to conventional wisdom. However low the cultural trends and opinion polls sink, do not yield to the spirit of despair. Instead, choose the most radical of all personal options today, the the subversive act of genuine joy. Listen to Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God shout for joy to the lord all the earth burst into jubilant song with music make music to the lord with the harp with the harp and the sound of singing with trumpets in the blast of the ram's horn shout for joy before the lord the king let the sea resound and all that's in it the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples with equity. The many sicknesses of our world tempt us with fear and insecurity. But the psalmist encourages us to resist those voices. He invites each person, every nation, all the ends of the earth, to experience the joy of being known and loved by Israel's God. Joy can be an an ambiguous word, We often link it with happiness, health, success, fame, wealth, pleasure, fun, or good fortune. In that sense of the word, joy is derivative. It's attached to and dependent upon some external source. Joy of that sort can exude a sense of smugness, entitlement, narcissism, or conversely even self-pity in the absence of of desired objects. Such joy seldom lasts long or is genuinely fulfilling, for it creates its own set of needs that are rarely satisfied. For example, we all know privileged people who enjoy the most fortunate of personal circumstances, but who are never content and always unhappy. And conversely, we know people who suffer much and possess little, but nevertheless radiate equanimity in gladness. And which is sadder that one could be so easily fulfilled by so very little a new car, a bigger house, a better job, or that you readily miss so much the blast of the ram's horn or the shout from the rooftop? Way back in the sixth century the philosopher Boethius wrote, what an upside-down state of affairs when a person who is divine by his gift of reason thinks his excellence depends on the possession of lifeless bric-a-brac, Terence Malick's film *The Tree of Life* captures these contrasting ways to live. The character Mrs. O'Brien struggles after a tragic accident took the life of her young son. She says. The nuns taught us there were two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too likes to lord it over them, to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it, and love is smiling through all things. The nuns taught us that no one who loves the way of grace comes to a bad end. Joy, then, is more elusive, more subtle, and more nuanced than happiness, pleasure, or good fortune. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis describes joy as, quote, an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both are in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. Whereas we can manipulate circumstances to our own advantage to obtain what we think will bring happiness, or expend great efforts in pleasure-seeking, joy is gratuitous. You can't earn it, buy it, or deserve it. It's a divine gift to receive rather than a selfish goal to pursue. The opposite of joy is not sadness, but anxiety. Jesus encouraged his followers, Do not worry about your life. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Consider the joy of the birds in their morning songs, or the flowers in their springtime glory, he said. If the Lord of the universe clothes creation with such extravagance, then we can rejoice in his love regardless of our circumstances. And in the Gospel of John 15 for this week, Jesus says we rest in his love so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In his poem, The Revival, the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan Challenges us to open our drowsy eyes to experience what he calls the drops and dews of future bliss. Listen to his poem, The Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call the Alp. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, And here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Living joyfully because of God's lavish love is the greatest honor that we can give God, said the mystic Juliana of Norwich, way back in the 14th century. No matter how bleak the forecasts of the cultural commentators With joy, we can experience his love, even in the dust and dirt of our lives. For books this week, I review The Shadow of a Great Rock, a Literary Appreciation of the King James Bible. The author is Harold Bloom, New Haven, Yale University Press, 2011. 311 pages. 2011 marked the 500th anniversary of the 1611 King James Bible. The literary critic Harold Bloom is in some ways perfectly placed to reflect on what he calls the sublime summit of English literature shared only with Shakespeare. Bloom was raised in a Yiddish-speaking Orthodox Jewish family in the Bronx. He taught himself English at the age of six. In addition to reading the Hebrew Bible his entire life, he's now in his 80s, He studied the Greek New Testament ever since taking a college seminar at Cornell 60 years ago. He thus describes himself as a so-called lifelong exegete of the Bible, Bloom completed his Ph.D. at Yale in 1955 and has been there ever since. His prolific output has been translated into 40 languages. Infamous for his controversial opinions, like defending the Western canon of literature, the present volume doesn't disappoint. He tries to limit himself to merely literary and aesthetic matters, but it's impossible not to comment on the religious meaning of the texts. Bloom doesn't believe in Yahweh. In his mind God has broken the the contractual obligations of the covenant far too many times. Nor does he approach the text as the Word of God like Jewish and Christian believers. Most of this book considers the Old Testament since the Hebrew text takes up about 85 percent of the King James Version. Only the last 50 pages treat the New Testament. The KJV was not a new translation. As Miles Smith wrote in the preface to the first edition, the goal of the 50 translators was, quote, to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one. In particular, the KJV built upon the previous traditions by William Tyndale Miles Coverdale in the Geneva Bible. Bloom compares and contrasts the stylistic differences of the four translations by including long, long quotes from the Bible. The only major criticism among his effusive praise is that the KJV imposes a so-called tonal uniformity of style that silences the distinct voices of the various writers. In other words, David, Isaiah, and Amos should not all sound the same. Bloom goes ballistic when he comes to the New Testament. Its Greek is vulgar compared to the literary glory of the Old Testament Hebrew. Christianity's triumphalistic supersessionism of Judaism repulses him. Except for Paul and James, he judges the New Testament a quote "viciously anti-Semitic work end quote." He writes, "The belated Testament has hatred at its core, despite its doctrine of love." He accuses Paul of a massive misreading of of Moses. That's not an original conclusion or unexpected from someone as opinionated as Bloom, nor does it detract from his otherwise deep appreciation for one of the most formative books in the history of the English language. Harold Bloom, The Shadow of a Great Rock For film this week, we turn to Poland, The movie is called In Darkness. Leopold Socha was a Polish Catholic sewer inspector in Lwów, Poland during the Nazi occupation. He was also a petty thief who hid his loot in the underground labyrinth, which he knew like the back of his hand. When he stumbled upon some Jews hiding in his sewers, he offered to protect them for a price. Otherwise, of course, he could turn them over to the Nazis for a handsome profit. They agree on a strictly business transaction, even though both sides deeply mistrust the other. But across the days and weeks, Soch's conscience awakens. And for 14 months, until the Russians liberated their city, and long after they stopped paying him, he successfully saved a dozen Jews. Socha, therefore, is a very ordinary and morally ambiguous hero, and the Jews themselves are often portrayed in the film in a negative light. In Darkness was Poland's nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. The movie is based upon the survivor's personal stories as collected by Robert Marshall in his book, The Sewers of Lvov, 1991, and by the first-person memoir of the last survivor in the group, Christina Chiggerby, the title The Girl in the Green Sweater, 2008, who was only a four-year-old at the time. In Darkness from Poland. The movie is in Polish, German, Yiddish, and Ukrainian, with English subtitles. And finally for this week in poetry, we've posted a poem by the British woman Edwina Gately. It's called, Let Your God Love You. Be silent, be still, alone. Empty before your God, say nothing, ask nothing, be silent, be still. Let your God look upon you, that is all. God knows, God understands. God loves you with an enormous love and only wants to look upon you with that love. Quiet, still, be. Let your God love you. Edwina Gately. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 13th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.